Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Front Row Network, the podcast network for people who actually like movies. And it's my extra special pleasure to welcome you to the first episode of View from the Back Row, a look at movies through the lens of disability representation on screen. See what I did there? It's uh, October, and that means it's monster cast season at the Front Row and NPR Illinois, during which we celebrate all things spooky and ooky. With that in mind, today we'll be talking about the classic thriller, Wait Until Dark, starring Audrey Hepburn. And speaking of classics, I'd like to introduce you to my guest for this episode, host of the podcast, Front Row Classics, Mr. Brandon Davis. Welcome to the show, Brandon. How's it going? Hey, Steve. I'm doing great. Very, very excited to be on your first episode here. Well, thank you. Thank you for being the sacrificial lamb and being the first one up. Um, now, we have a tradition here at the front row. When someone comes on a podcast for the first time, the host generally asks them what their favorite movie is. Well, Brandon is a front row OG, so I'm going to change it up a little bit and ask you, Brandon, what was the first movie you remember seeing that featured a character with a disability? The very first, I remember... Um I don't know if it was in an actual movie or if it was on the TV show, but the character of Linda from Sesame Street, who oh, was yeah. deaf, um, I, I remember she, she was she's in the movie Follow That Bird, and yes. uh, she plays a very important role in that. So that, I think, just going back into the annals of my memory, that's really the first one I remember. But like, I, I'm thinking probably watching The Miracle Worker in school was probably mm. also one of my earliest memories as well. Yeah. But, but, but the character of Linda, I think, was really my first um, exposure to someone with a disability through any kind of media. That's, I had completely forgotten about Linda, but that was, that was a big deal um, at the time. Um, Now I want to start out by telling uh, you listeners out there a little bit more about what we intend to do in this podcast. Um, As a wheelchair user and a music, music lover too, but a movie lover is what I meant to say. um, I've always been fascinated with how, disabled characters are portrayed in movies and whether they're portrayed by disabled actors or not. So on this podcast, we'll look at some noteworthy movies and talk about how they treat their characters with disabilities. So with that out of the way, let's look at our movie for this episode, uh, 1967's Wait Until Dark. Uh, released on October 26th of that year, um, which is my birthday, by the way. You still have some time to shop. Um, Wait Until Dark stars Audrey Hepburn, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., Alan Arkin, and Jack Weston. Uh, it's based on a play by Frederick Knott, uh, and the movie version was directed by Terrence Young, who you might know from having directed three of the first James Bond movies. So, Brandon, had you seen this movie before I asked you on the show? I had. Um, this has been um, a favorite movie of mine for a while. I, I guess I, I guess I first saw it maybe in junior high. I'm thinking maybe maybe early high school or whatever. Um, yeah, I, and I think it was it was my uncle who first showed it to me, and I I loved it from the very beginning. It's one of my favorite films of the '60s. You know, it's. Um, and I think, and I think it could possibly be Audrey Hepburn's finest performance. And I mean, and that's saying something because she clocked in quite a few of them. Yes, uh, she was nominated for uh, Best Actress uh, for this performance, um, and she did not win it, and actually uh, retired 
pretty much de facto after this role, although she would come back and do some television roles much later on in her mm-hmm. career. But this was as far as a, um, uh, as far as a big movie role, this was one of her last ones. So that's interesting. Um, Brandon, can you tell us a little bit uh, for those who may uh, have not seen it or haven't seen wait until dark in a long time, could you uh, give us a little rundown of the plot? Sure. Yes. Um, and just to let everybody know, even though this is a movie that's, you know, over 50 years old, uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty intense movie. So if you don't want to be spoiled, <laughs> pause this and go and watch it and then come back and listen to us. But um, Absolutely. yeah, yeah. But here's a basic rundown. Um, after a flight back home, Sam Hendricks, played by Ephraim Zemblis Jr., um, returns with a doll he innocently, innocently acquired along the way from a woman named Lisa. As it turns out, the doll is actually stuffed with heroin, and a group of criminals led by Rote, played by Alan Arkin. Um, also, um, the, the criminal, the other criminals are played by Richard Crenna and Jack Weston, and they followed Hendricks back to his place to retrieve it. When Hendricks leaves for business, the crooks make their move and find his blind wife, Susie, alone in the apartment. Soon, a life-threatening game begins between Susie and the thugs, although the thugs soon begin to realize that Susie's abilities are a little bit more than what they bargained for. Excellent. Yes. Um, At the time that uh, the movie is set, uh, it's implied that Susie has um, been blind for about a year, um, due to a um, accident, um, I believe it was a car accident that also involved fire, which uh, the fire element uh, takes uh, uh, special significance late in the plot. Um, but she ever, almost since the, the day that she was blinded, she has been attending school for the blind. She is fluent in uh, typing in and reading Braille. Um, which is actually a, a departure from the play. Um, in the play, they uh, didn't mention Braille um, because it's probably a little bit more feasible uh, for uh, close-ups and stuff to establish um, the fact she's using Braille. Um, and, yes, yeah, you mentioned she has uh, abilities um, in the show uh, that, uh, as we see often when people – uh, have been blind, but usually blind for some time. Uh, they develop their other senses, and um, her sense of hearing uh, is a important plot point at one point. Um, she mentions her uh, heightened sense of smell at some point. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk a little about, bit about this. You know that this is a creepy movie. Uh, right from the get-go, because the opening credits music is uh, a piano duet with two pianos that are tuned a quarter tone apart, and um, it, it made the uh, the pianist kind of ill to play it, as I understand when they recorded it. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think about that use of music right from the get-go? Oh, I think it's uh, I think it's great. It immediately 
um, the, just the first shot with the Warner Brothers logo when you just see sort of the, the red satin of the doll and you don't know what it is right away. Um, it, it, it gives itself kind of this eerie mystery to it. But yeah, that score, it's a very, it's a very simple but effective score written by Henry Mancini. Yeah. When, when you think about his other scores, whether it be like the Pink Panther or like his lush, you know, romantic score for like Breakfast at Tiffany's and other movies, um, very, very different and very simple. And it does its job because it, it sort of sets you on edge in that whole first opening sequence. Cause when you're a new viewer, you know, you, you don't really have any idea what's going on. So it, it's very unsettling because there's so many, um, so many mysterious images going around you. So yeah, those two separate chords really keep you on edge. And really, that is one of the things, and, and we'll talk about a couple of other elements later, but that's one of the things that distinguishes this to me as one of the first horror movies as opposed to a thriller or mystery or something like that because um, there are some very visceral reactions uh, that the viewer has uh, as they watch Wait Until Dark. And that is like one from the get-go. You hear that out-of-tune piano and uh-huh. kind of turns your stomach just a little bit. Uh, then, of course, you've got the whole creepy doll uh, angle. Um, <laughs> although this doll isn't necessarily one of the creepier uh, elements in film, the fact that such a uh, an innocent plaything is being used to... Uh, Transport smack is uh, uh, a little bit dark. Right. Um, and this is one of the first um, movies that I recall uh, making specific reference of heroin trafficking. Brandon, you're, you're the classics guy. Um, what, do, what do you think about that chronology? Yeah, I, th- I think this is uh, the, this might actually be the first time you see heroin on film or, or close to it because we're – we're in 1967, and this is kind of that pivotal turning point year of movies. This is the year where The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde and uh, In the Heat of the Night come out, and so many important movies, you know, that deal with issues that Hollywood, you know, wouldn't have dared to tackle. And I think the drug aspect of this movie was pretty groundbreaking. I mean, we'd seen thrillers before, definitely, but I think we're moving into territory that, you know, directors even a decade earlier probably wouldn't have managed. And and as you mentioned before, the word visceral, I think is right. It's very, um, you you know, compared to today though, it's, it it seems tame, but to, um, to, to, to think of like the, the drug aspect of it is really, was really sort of groundbreaking for its time, I think. And you mentioned earlier how Henry Mancini, his, his scores are always wonderful and they always seem almost like a character in the movie, uh, under themselves. Um, but uh, the fact that this was a lot darker than you would expect from Henry Mancini, mm-hmm. same, I think, applies, for me anyway, to seeing Alan Arkin um, playing this really, really evil guy. Um, and in fact, he ends up playing three aliases um, uh, due to the, the complicated... Um, uh, backstory that the, the criminals weave, but what was it like for you seeing Alan Arkin, who I think of typically as a comedian or a comic actor, uh, what was your take on his dark uh, aspect that he brings to the role of Rote? 
Yeah, he's he's fantastic. I really, um, you know, because I saw this when I was young, I don't know if this was the first Alan Arkin role that I had seen or not. I probably had seen him in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, which is a totally different, uh, <laughs> to- totally different tone. But, uh, but, but yeah, I think he plays this wonderfully. It really surprises me that he did not get at least a nomination for this role. But I think, I think a lot of people, especially critics at the time, felt he was a little too over the top. But once again, that flows into the whole, I don't think drug culture had, was that prevalent in movies at the time. So I, I think it was a little more accurate than what people had thought, but he's great. I mean, I, I think it's a very underrated portrayal of somebody so sadistic um, that he'll go to any kind of lengths uh, and movie. I don't think we'd seen, you know, we'd seen the Norman Bates-ish type of characters before, but, but this guy just, you know, does these sadistic things just to do them. And for Arkin, I think pulls it off great. And he really, he really delineates well between those three different characters that he plays. Yes. Um, so to, I'm going to try and sum up this uh, this sto- uh, backstory that they plan. Jump in if I get it off the rails. Um, basically, to get to the doll, which the criminals know is in the apartment somewhere, they fabricate this story where, first of all, the uh, Richard Crenna um, character, Mark, I believe is his name, mm-hmm. um, poses to Audrey Hepburn as a friend of her husband, an old friend for, of her husband's, and he just wanted to return something to him or talk to him. He was in the neighborhood and dropped by, and um, he gradually gained Susie's trust. Well, come to find out, uh, there comes an element where the police... Uh, are suspecting uh, her husband of having murdered someone uh, to get to that doll. Um, And, of course, they have a wonderful relationship, so Audrey Hepburn doesn't think there's any way that that could be. But the uh, doll, the pursuit of the doll, uh, introduces Alan Arkin playing uh, a character uh, named Rote and both his father and his son um, trying to get the doll. And then Jack Weston, who normally plays a more comic character, is this dirty ex-cop who portrays a on-the-level cop trying to press Susie for the whereabouts of the doll so they can close this case. Mm-hmm. And their play acting uh, is designed to create this elaborate uh, subtext for them just being in the place and looking for the doll and having Susie give the doll uh, to Mark, uh, the Richard Crenna character, so that he can get rid of it because that's the evidence tying um, Sam, the husband, to the murder. Yeah. Did I get that right? <laughs> yeah, you did. It's, and, and, you know, it really is. And explaining it, you, you don't think about it when you're in it watching it. It's a very twisty plot. I mean, there's so many details to it because everybody's playing it on different levels because you've got these three crooks who are playing it on one level, but they're pretending to be other people for Susie. So that's another level. And then you've got Audrey and Gloria. You know, there's so many different levels going on and so much subtext going on in the movie that, that, yeah, there's so many different details to cover. 
it's a thriller, and uh, it has been compared somewhat to uh, a Hitchcockian thriller, and I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on that a little bit later. But mm-hmm. this whole um, backstory, this contrived ruse, um, reminded me a lot of Agatha Christie-level detail and mystery. Yeah. Um, did that occur to you at all when you watched it? Yeah, I think because, I, like we said, because Agatha Christie really um, – really sort of made her mark in terms of the details of all the crimes and the details of um, how things are done. Whereas Hitchcock is a lot more um, visual. And so I, I, you're right. It's got the tone and the feel of like a thriller, but yeah, the Agatha Christiness, I that, that makes sense to me because, you know, so many different things are in play with, you know, the, you know, things like the phone booth and where certain things are hidden. And, and yeah, and, and, and as the audience, you got to kind of keep straight of what's going on at, at the time and, and where sort of everybody's heads are at. So yeah, the, the Agatha Christie section of it, it really does play out kind of like, even though it's not a, it's not a whodunit because we know what's going on. It's sort of watching it's, it's the character of Susie figuring out what's going on as she sort of learns detail by detail. And that's a, that's a whole different technique used in mysteries that I love where mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the audience trying to figure it out, but how to, how it's the audience figuring out how the character is going to figure it out. Right. And, um, as she, uh, uh, does. So that gets us into the discussion of her disability as it's played on screen, because a number of very important clues, uh, are detectable to her only because her level of detail with her other senses pick it up. You've got, uh, we talked about Rote, the Alan Arkin character playing multiple different aliases, but they all have the same shoe squeak. Yeah. And um, Susie picks up on that because she is so attuned to sounds. Um, Another thing she begins to suspect that uh, there's a there's a whole lot of calls. You mentioned a phone booth um, that's pivotal to the plot. There's a uh, a phone booth that's used to simulate calls into the apartment. Um, at one point, um, the fake cop will call to uh, the station, the precinct, and um, one of the other cohorts will be in the phone booth to answer that call or place that call. But they're using rotary phones because this is, of course, the 60s. And um, Susie's character is able to detect a difference in the dialing pattern, um, so much so that she starts to make notes of what the different phone numbers are. And it turns out all of the calls that are supposed to be coming in from a variety of locations are coming in, in fact, all from this one phone booth. Um, And so... I think Audrey Hepburn does a pretty, pretty good job, a really good job, actually, of playing uh, a character with a a vision problem. Um, What did you, what elements in her performance uh, resonated with you that um, she's really doing this part of her role well? Yeah, I'm not, you, you know, I'm not, I, I can't claim to be an expert on, you know, the, the, the vision impaired or whatever, but um, it, it, she feels like even though 
it is Audrey Hepburn because Audrey Hepburn brings, you know, a little bit of her personality into every role. She feels I, just in the way she looks, she doesn't have, you know, the little, um, the little spunky glint in her eye, you know, that she has in every kind of movie. She's very, she does great at, at, at sort of the glassy glazed over stare and she never breaks. And, right. and, and it's, it, it's easy. And, and, you know, as you watch, as you watch it multiple times, the first time you're watching it, you're just engrossed in the story. But as you watch it multiple times, you start to look out for things like that. But it's very, very good. I read, um, I actually own a Blu-ray of this movie and there's a little short, like 10 minute feature documentary on it. And, uh, her husband at the time, Mel Ferrer, who produced this movie, um, said that they, um, offered to give her special contacts to wear to give her that look, but she refused them because she really wanted it to look as natural as possible. And she practiced as hard as she could, you know, not, not allowing peripheral vision to distract her or anything like that. So I think, I think, you know, she does a very remarkable job and, uh, you know, it feels like a totally different character than we're used to seeing her play. Um, yeah, yeah you, good points there uh, all around. Um, I found it interesting how she, how good she was at avoiding eye contact. Uh-huh. Um, the only time we saw her actually use eye contact, it was more of she placed a familiar voice and um, then when she looked at the person to whom she was speaking, she could improvise the feel of eye contact mm-hmm. and that's where you did see her face light up uh, right. at the warmth of seeing somebody that she recognized or excuse mm-hmm. me, not seeing somebody she recognized, recognizing someone and conversing with them. She yeah. had uh much more warmth in her face and more of that uh, glint, uh, that Audrey Hepburn joy that you see in so many other movies when she's comfortable with whoever she's talking to. Um, There, uh, there's one other um, subplot I want to talk a little bit about. Mm -hmm. Uh, It, it becomes kind of important to the plot later on, but it's just an interesting character interaction between uh, a neighbor girl that helps Susie at the time at, at times and uh, Susie herself. Uh, I believe the character's name is Gloria Brandon. Yes. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your impressions of uh, the relationship that builds between uh, Susie and Gloria. I really, I, I like the character of Gloria. Uh, first of all, I think that, um, Oh, what's the actress who plays her? Uh, Julie Herrett. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's a very good child actress. You know, this was a time when child acting was not the most natural. And she plays it very, very natural. She holds her own with really, really veteran, capable actors. And I, I love the relationship because in the beginning, it, there's almost like a competitiveness between Gloria and, and Susie because there's kind of the subtext that uh, Gloria's in love with Sam. And, and so, uh, you know, Susie's kind of in her way there. But they have that wonderful little character scene, and you don't usually get them in movies like this. But I think it really uh, creates a depth of character that really pays off in the end. But, um, it, it's the scene where, uh, Gloria's, you know, gonna go do the grocery shopping and she doesn't shut the refrigerator door. And, uh, you know, and, uh, Susie calls her a little monster and she goes, she starts throwing things. And then, you know, uh, 
Audrey, uh, the character of Susie has that realization where, you know, you know, this, the blindness, you know, has made me irritable and cranky. And, um, you know, she, she says, I must look terrible. And then Gloria reassures her, Oh no, you're beautiful. And, and they have that wonderful little, you know, character moment that kind of bonds them. And so it's really, it's really this sort of beautiful relationship. And it's, um, it's Susie's got these abilities, but when she needs that extra mile and needs those extra eyes, Gloria's there to be those extra eyes. And Gloria is essential to the plot, I think. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, the 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 scene you're talking about is just kind of a masterclass in acting because uh-huh. they go from barely tolerating each other uh-huh. to uh, Gloria uh, actually tormenting her a little bit by throwing yeah. things around and leaving her to pick them up. And it's only when she sees Susie wandering around and picking, trying to find things and pick them up that she realizes what she did was kind of a dirty move and she kneels down and helps her. Um, And at one point Susie said, did anything break? And Gloria says, Oh no, uh, I only threw unbreakables. My father taught me that. (laughs) And that (laughs) just cracked me up. Um, But you you mentioned something else uh, that gave me a really handy segue. Um, The feeling that uh, Audrey Hepburn's character, Susie gets when she, realizes that um, she does have limits and she's still trying to figure them out. And towards the end of the movie, um, she's really at a disadvantage with these prowlers and she's just terrified when she realizes the, the, the ruse that they have perpetrated on her and in how much danger she is in. And I thought that 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 really resonated with me as another person with a disability because most of the time you can handle um, your disabilities, particularly if, like me, you've had them all your life. Uh But uh, a recurring nightmare that I have is um, being somewhere lost and with a broken wheelchair. Um, because mm. I am at my most vulnerable point then. And we kind of see the same reaction from Susie at the end when she realizes she's let these people into her home. She's been deceived, and now she is at the worst possible disadvantage that she could be at, um, and it just terrifies her. But then she finds the strength within her, to level the playing field. Um, and again, this this is spoiler territory, so uh, if you haven't paused yet and you <laughs> haven't watched the movie yet, you might want to pause a little bit. But, Brandon, uh, tell us a little bit about how she turns the tail or turns the tables at the end of this tale. Yeah, it's it, it, we had talked about this before. You know, it's it, it slowly begins to happen. It's when you know it, it. It really is when Gloria comes in and she she's been told the whole time. You know that there's a police car outside, and you know Gloria lets her know no, there's just a van with men standing by it, and um, that they've come up with this code to where. Um, anytime somebody leaves that phone booth outside, Gloria has to give Susie's apartment two rings and then hang up and she'll know that, you know, somebody, and once she figures out that 
uh, Mike, played by Richard Crenna, the man who she's especially given her trust to, has done that. That's when things sort of start. And then it really, really begins after um, another moment when she realizes that the phone cord has been cut and she's at a total disadvantage because she sent Gloria away to go get Sam when he gets off the bus and she was going to go call the police. She can't call the police now. And so she's stuck. And so the way she begins to turn the tables is she is going to give these three guys the uh, disadvantages um, that she's been given. So she uh, turns out every light in the place and, um, you know, she's able, she has experience. She can feel her way around in the dark and remember where things are, whereas these guys can't. And that's really sort of, you know, the, the genius of the final act of this movie, because it really, um, she's not a helpless victim. She really takes things into her own hands. Yes, absolutely. And that sets up uh, a final confrontation with Rote, played by Alan Arkin. Um, the other characters are dead at this point. Um, uh, and Rote's the only surviving bad guy. Um, and uh, he is stabbed at one point uh, in a struggle over a knife that uh, uh, Susie has. Um, and we assume he's just going to bleed out. And uh, Susie starts to cross the uh, apartment and he lunges out from the darkness with one final uh, gasp of, of life in him. And it's generally acknowledged that this is one of the first jump scares in movie history, which also for me puts it into uh, more of a horror classification than really fitting our uh, monster cast theme this month. Uh, Brandon, what did you think of that moment? Oh, it's a great moment. It's totally, I think, I think that we were so used to jump scares. Now we can see them coming in 1967. Um, you, you know, the, the shower scene in Psycho was probably the closest thing that, uh, audience had seen to like a really earned jump scare, but this is really earned because if I were an audience in 1967, based on what I know from previous movies, Alan Arkin should be dead. And, you know, she, you know, she goes up to call for help and then, you know, but they distract you because of all everything that's in the way. She's got to walk over Richard Crenna's corpse to get up the stairs. She's got to walk over his corpse to get back down. And so you're just really sort of um, worried for her safety to get out of there. And you kind of, you know, don't even think that that would ever be an option. And as she's crossing that living room and that perfect little cord and he just jumps out. Yeah, that it's a perfect it's a perfect jump scare. And, you know, so many filmmakers have stolen from what Terrence Young did with that. And it, it's perfectly earned. I can't, I can't imagine audiences in, in a movie theater in 1967 reacting to that. Um, to heighten that effect, I don't know if you know this, Brandon, uh, because you're a little bit more of a student of the movie than I am. And I've just uh, absorbed it in the last few days. Um, but I guess to immerse the viewers in the theaters uh, of the suspense of that scene when uh, Audrey Hepburn's character takes out all the lights and it's dark, uh, movie theater owners progressively dim their lights to the legal limit for how, you know, how dark you could make a theater. And then they turned off those lights, yeah. leaving the audience in complete darkness for that final scene. So I can only imagine being a, a theater goer in 1967 and, and seeing 
that take place in that kind of atmosphere. Yeah, totally. I, you know, I, I, I can't even imagine, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think legally you could even do that now, <laughs> but, right. uh, that, I, yeah, that, that effect, um, we, yeah, because you're literally being put into the scene with her, um, the, th- through everything. And I also think part of the, I, I think part of the reason why this was also so shocking in 67, not only because of what was going on and the darkness aspect, but the fact that it is Audrey Hepburn, because uh, audiences are used to seeing Audrey Hepburn at this point so pristine and chic and glamorous and in these, you know, romantic situations and everything. They've never seen her in a situation like this before. So, it, you know, the, that's got to set you on edge to sort of see America's sweetheart being put into this sort of um perilous predicament um yeah everything everything every decision that was made about this movie was meant to unsettle you yeah and you mentioned uh the fact that audrey hepburn was uh at this point america's sweetheart and understandably so um but it leads into one of the probably only problematic parts uh elements of the movie to me uh, particularly when you're talking about through uh, the prism uh, of the disability. Um, blind characters in films are or were typically viewed as morally pure, um, blameless, and thus it made the audience uh, root for them even more um, because uh, they're they're a pure soul being victimized. Mm. And that eh, is a little bit cringy through a modern view, as is the um, kind of sexism that uh, the husband, uh, who is otherwise charming, displays to his wife. You know, he's he's ruthlessly, almost ruthless in wanting to, her to be that perfect blind lady. Yeah. Um, what What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, that was that kind of uh, that stuck out to me this time. I said, you know, she really has sort of a more romantic chemistry with Richard Crenna than she does with Ephraim Zembalist. Absolutely, and 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 the scenes that we get to have, and it's almost like in a different life, she and Mike would have been a perfect couple um, had had Mike not gotten you, you know. And Sam's a perfectly nice husband, and he has good intentions, but. Yeah, I think I think you're right due to the sexism at the time and also, you know, because because she even, you know, at one point when she's frustrated, she says, do you want me to be the world champion blind person? And he outright says yes. <laughs> and she's, yeah, and it's like, oh, hey, yeah, and, that's that's a little cringy. Yeah. yeah um, and even and, and even at the very end, um, even at the very end, you know, you, you would think after she's been, you know, tormented in this way, he would run up and hug her and everything. But now he still makes her, you know, find him sort of, you know. Gloria goes up and gives her a hug, but now he's st- he's still sort of making her, you know, get up on her own two feet at that point. You know, and that was uh, the substance of the very animated argument that took place at my home when we watched this uh, a few days ago. Uh, I had Rebecca uh, and uh, my wife, Rebecca, and a friend of ours, Jess, uh, over, and we were watching it, and they were just appalled at that action uh, of um, uh, Sam trying to get her to follow his voice and, 
and and get over it. And and I I felt the same way too. But it was interesting to see um, the uh, the ugly specter of of misogyny raising its head. And and uh, I I tried to give a devil's advocate uh, position that maybe he wanted to convince her that she still could control her yeah. destiny and, and they weren't buying it at all. So <laughs> I think, I, I think her being alive and the other three guys being dead proves that she can handle herself. Absolutely. That's exactly what they said. It's like, <laughs> don't need any more tests today. Uh, we've outsmarted <laughs> yeah. three professional criminals. So um, get over yourself. So I thought that was kind of interesting, but other than that, um, the movie is still regarded highly uh, today for a very realistic uh, portrayal uh, uh, of blindness. And you touched on something earlier. I want to uh, give a note to our listeners that uh, I, just because that I am in a wheelchair, I am not the be all end all source on uh, all disabilities. And we'll try to bring in a diverse uh, voices as, as we look at some of these movies uh, with people maybe more qualified to speak to that than, uh, I am, but uh, it's it's just uh, it makes for some good talk, some good yeah. movie talk among Absolutely. people who like movies, who we are. Um, a couple more interesting bits of trivia about Wait Until Dark. Um, it was one of the more popular movies of the year, um, earning uh, $7.35 million in 1967. It wasn't the, the top grosser, but uh, it was a very respectable showing. Um, and the other piece of uh, trivia I wanted to, to introduce was you talked about Julie Harris, um, the little girl Gloria, uh, holding her own against the other actors in stage, uh, or excuse me, on film. Um, part of that, I believe, is that Julie Harris is the only cast member from the play Wait Until Dark that made it into the movie. Oh wow! I so, did not know that. Okay. So yeah, um, she so she had a obviously had a very firm grasp on the material uh, and turned in a great uh, performance as a result. And she hasn't done much or didn't do much at all uh, following that movie, but she's got a great supporting uh, credit in Wait Until Dark. So. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts on this movie, uh, Wait Until Dark, Brandon? Oh, I not the, it really, uh, you know, aside from the couple little creaky things that you talked about, as a thriller, it holds up. It really, and, and it really, what I appreciate about it is it doesn't jump into the, you, you know, it has a very sort of um, eerie opening um, where you're not sure what's going on, but it really doesn't jump into the thriller until you know at least you know over a quarter way into the movie and so it's it's a perfect example of how a movie taking its time can really pay off in the end you know i i think i think movies can learn from that where when you get to know the characters um the stakes become even higher at the end and i think i think this movie is a perfect example of it it really it takes its time and then once the action starts um you're you're in it and you care about you know these people and you have a vested interest in what happened to them and i think yeah it's a great thriller it's 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 perfect october viewing i i would just second that and say that the setup uh is just really intricate and deliberately paced and the payoff uh in the last third of the movie is just 
fantastic. Um, yeah. Highly recommended. Um, rent it if you possibly can. I know that it is available on uh, Amazon Prime. That's how I found it. But uh, mm-hmm. definitely give it a, a check uh, on your uh, streaming services of choice that you can find it on. Um, so as we, uh, come to the end of this inaugural episode, uh, Brandon, uh, host of Front Row Classics, can you tell me what's coming up on your podcast? Yeah, but by the time this episode releases, um, Eric and I, Eric, who's my co-host on Classics, we were able to do, um, we've been able to get a couple nice interviews this summer, but we were able to get one last week. Um, We interviewed Todd Fisher, who, if you don't know that name, he's uh, the brother of Carrie Fisher and the son of Debbie Reynolds. And um, he, uh, director, producer, cinematographer, um, he's... um, he, he, he sort of puts his hat into all of it. He wrote a book a couple of years ago called My Girls about his experience growing up uh, with those two women. And he's also an avid movie memorabilia collector. So we, uh, oh, wow. we, so we talked to him um, and I, I told Eric after the interview, it's rare. And we're going to put up a video version of it because there's a lot of visual aspects to it. But I said, it's very rare when you interview somebody who has the ruby slippers on one side of him and R2-D2 on the other side. Wow. So, wow. So, he is, yeah. He's a movie museum unto himself, it sounds he, like. He, he really is. And his, uh, his mother um, famously, you know, tried, uh, you know, amassed a huge amount of warehouses of genuine movie memorabilia, could never get anybody in Hollywood to um, fund the museum or anything like that. So she ended up before her death having to auction it all. But, you know, they, they amassed a, a good amount of money because of it. But he saved a few things. And he's also, he's also a big collector of cameras. And he tells us all about that. He tells great stories about Carrie and Debbie. So that's a fun episode. You can, right now, as this episode releases, you can go and hear that. And then coming up for MonsterCast, um, we're doing a uh, Frankenstein-themed month. We're going to talk about the original Universal Monster movie, Frankenstein, from 1931. And uh, then we're also going to be talking about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein to do something on the lighter side. Absolutely. Those are classics. Um, As far as uh, the view from the back row, um, this is episode one. Episode two, looking to drop sometime in November, Uh, we'll be looking at the Unbreakable trilogy. Uh, Unbreakable and um, uh, Split uh, and Glass, um, because we are rapidly approaching the 20th anniversary of uh, the release of Unbreakable. So um, that should be an interesting uh, episode, and we hope to see you there. Um, So this wraps it up for this episode of View from the Back Row on the Front Row Network and NPR Illinois. Until next time, this is Steve Sykes. And this is Brandon Davis. And we'll see you on the Front Row. For listening to this episode of the Front Row Network, a proud Community Voices member of National Public Radio Illinois. For more from the Front Row Network, including our articles or our other dozens of shows, visit thefrontrownetwork.com or nprillinois.org slash programs slash Front Row Network. You can also find us on social media by searching for the Front Row Network on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, and on Twitter at Front Row Reviews with a Z.